This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 205, The Masterpiece Society. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, being all like, what? And, huh? And asking whether we'll be asking those same questions forever and ever. This week, the Masterpiece Society, the one where everything is going fine for the people of Moab 4 until the Enterprise shows up. Or maybe it was the runaway stellar core that was going to wreck everything. It's kind of hard to say. Yeah, it is indeed. But here are the questions. Can the people of Moab 4 be saved? Can Deanna find love among the colonists? And should any of those things actually happen? We'll talk about that later. Coming up, trivia tied to the Masterpiece Society. But first, we want to remind you about the official Star Trek Starships collection. Have you started building your armada yet? There's really no building involved, you know. Uh, What happens is twice a month you get a new ship from the Star Trek universe. Klingon, Vulcan, Romulan, Federation, of course. If it's been in a movie, a TV show, or even ships that haven't hit the screen yet, it may end up in your collection. Now, in addition to the ships, you get a magazine about the ship, which is awesome. Offering all kinds of extras, like uh, information about the ship in-universe and in reality. You also get a digital copy of the magazine, which is awesome, since that'll let you read the content and peruse the pictures without wrinkling the physical magazine, and you get a stand for your ship so that it can be perpetually in flight. Each shipment, that's the magazine, the digital magazine, the ship, and the stand, are 20 bucks each. That's two ships a month at $20 each, but it doesn't cost you that much to check it out. You can get started now with the Enterprise 1701D, its magazine, its other magazine, and its stand for $4.95. And that includes shipping. There's no question that that's worth $4.95. Probably what'll happen is you'll think it's worth $20 easy, and before you know it, you will have enough ships to fill a table, table not included. It is important to note that the table is not included. (laughs) <laughs> the way to get started is at st-starships.com slash mission log. Uh, that address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. Not only does your order through that site support this show, it uh, makes you a master of the universe or or the galaxy or a quadrant of the galaxy. The address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And we do thank Eagle Moss, the company behind the starships, uh, for getting behind Mission Log as well. Now, a lot of you already have ships, and you've been sending us pictures, and that's great. Uh, For the rest of you, if you haven't sent us your pictures yet, or when you get your first one, or if you just have anything else you want to say to us, anything else you want to pass our way, there are a bunch of ways to do that. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, 
It is the moment that John Champion has been waiting for. It's John Champion's trivia. <laughs> All right. The Masterpiece Society. It was written by James Kahn. Not not James Kahn, but James <laughs> Kahn. Oh, okay. And uh, Adam Belanoff. Now, this was Adam's first professional credit as a writer. He was only about 26 at the time. And it kicked off a solid career for him as a writer and producer. Shows such as Murphy Brown, Wings, The Closer, and Major Crimes followed. And, I mean, Major Crimes <laughs> the show, the show major, okay. not Major right. Crimes. He's, you know, by all intents, a good guy. Um, the script here is by Adam Belanoff and Michael Piller. Now, this was a very polarizing script among the staff. Uh, the version that was filmed, this one, was after multiple drafts by at least five different writers. And by the time Michael Piller decided to have a crack at it, um, you know, the assessment of what went right and what went wrong was all pretty divided among the production staff. So it's kind of worth looking into what some of their comments were. Uh, directed by Star Trek The Next Generation veteran Vinrich Colby. We've talked about him quite a bit. And uh, let's talk a little about historical context. So yes, there is a city in Utah called Moab. But more likely, the reference here is the Old Testament era kingdom of Moab on the Dead Sea, currently part of Jordan. There's not a whole lot of history about the place, but for our purposes, it's interesting to note that the name translates to Seed of the Father. Now, we hear some Chopin played in this episode, more evidence that cultural artistic development in the 24th century is still deeply hanging on to the 19th century. <laughs> um, and a stellar core, Ken, is a real thing, of course, because our sun has a center, so... There you go. Now, what happens if it or a part of it gets flung around? Well, what that would do is a very good question. Um, as data points out, they are very dense and very hot, though to data's calculation, eh, not quite sure if that's entirely accurate by current estimates. Suffice to say, it's unlikely that you just cruise along in your starship next to one. <laughs> According to what I've found, you're talking about a density of about 150 grams per centimeter cubed, so about 150 times the density of water centimeter cubed, and you're talking about 15 million degrees Celsius. So um, probably want to keep your distance if one is going floating around. And uh, let's see. Oh, we get to welcome back some blinky lights props on Moab 4 that we've seen at least since the Wrath of Khan. And if I'm not mistaken, I may have seen them on Buck Rogers as well, even before that. These were rental pieces. We've mentioned uh, modern props before, and that's where these came from, too. Now, we've got three guest stars that I want to focus on for this episode. We have Ron Canada. He plays Martin Benbeck. Uh, Ron has appeared in movies like Wedding Crashers and National Treasure, but he mostly works in TV. Appearances on shows like Cheers, Melrose Place, Doogie Howser. Those led to recurring and regular roles on Hangin' with Mr. Cooper, Murder One, The Shield, The West Wing, Boston Legal, and more. He appears in one episode of Babylon 5, and he will be back for two more Star Trek appearances in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Day Young is Hannah Bates. Now, Day got her start in the cult film Rock and Roll High School alongside none other than Trek alum Clint Howard. TV appearances racked up like T.J. Hooker, Heart to Heart. She even appeared in the movie Spaceballs and in Pretty Woman. She was the saleswoman in that famous shopping scene. And recurring roles followed on Melrose Place and Jag. She had guest appearances on Bones, The Mentalist, West Wing, and more. She will also be back twice more in Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. 
And finally, John Snyder. No, not John Schneider from the Dukes of Hazard. This is John Snyder. He plays Aaron Connor. He may not be a household name, but he does have some cool credits to his name. Miami Vice, The Equalizer, Wise Guy, Quantum Leap, and the movie Sid and Nancy and The Warriors. Where his career has just exploded, though, is as a voice actor. Pick up just about any anime from the last 10 or 15 years, and he's probably in it. Ghost in the Shell, Mobile Suit Gundam, uh, Iko Tosin, Tokyo Mafia, Cowboy Bebop, and so very much more. He also appeared in Babylon 5, and we saw him once before in the next-gen episode, The Enemy. After the difficulties of the last episode, it will be fun to tackle something light, like eugenics. Prologue. A stellar core fragment is cruising along in the Moab system when the Enterprise comes alongside for a look. It's an interesting phenomenon, but will cause major problems for the people on Moab 4. What's that, you say? Never heard of the people living on Moab 4? Well, neither has anyone else on the Enterprise, for that matter. But there's a biosphere, maybe even an old subspace transmitter. Good enough. Captain Picard opens a channel to introduce himself and warn about the oncoming fragment, which will cause horrific earthquakes. Problem is, no one is responding. Shields go up around the structures on the planet, but Picard repeats his message. Finally, Aaron Connor replies to Picard, and his message isn't so welcoming. You see, they're not very interested, now go away. Picard is a little stunned. Their mission is important, but who are these people on Moab for anyway? Aaron still says, of course not, and to mind their own business. Putting on his most diplomatic but firm voice, Picard offers up again that they can just beam him up, now, a matter-energy transfer is intriguing enough, so before he can call Picard the son of a silly person or blow his nose at him, an away team from the Enterprise is welcomed to beam down. Concerned about their arrival is Aaron's associate, Martin, but too late now, the team arrives and stuns the onlookers assembled to meet them. Act 1. Here's the story on Moab 4. A couple hundred years ago, Earth colonists settled down there, and everything is quite perfect— mainly because every one there is genetically selected to be the best and the brightest. They don't want any outsiders to mess with their perfect society. The landing party totally gets it, especially Jordy, who is made aware that people like him, blind or otherwise disabled, would simply not exist on this world. For these reasons, the colonists don't want to leave, and they don't want outside interference either, thank you very much. Well, Aaron at least is entertaining the idea that the Stellar Corps could wipe them all out, as leader, that's his prerogative. Martin, as a community judge, is also exercising his prerogative to remind Aaron that this goes against everything the Founders intended. Aaron further explains to Riker that their whole existence is based around the idea that everyone is completely fulfilled and that they are doing the jobs and living the lives they are best suited to do. Deanna chimes in that they will do everything they can to make sure their colony isn't disrupted. Meet Hannah Bates now. She's a brilliant scientist, but of course she is. And she'll be working with Jordy to see if they can tack their way out of this predicament. While she works with Jordy, Riker and Deanna will go back to the Enterprise, only not so fast. Deanna has opted to stay behind and get to know the colony a little better. And Aaron is the one to help her. She's concerned about their presence disrupting the colonist's way of life, but Aaron has a little more liberal attitude about things than Martin. They are human. They may need to adapt to new realities. 
Dana finds this all fascinating, and Aaron finds her fascinating, too, on a personal level. Also getting to know each other are Hannah and Jordy. They're coming up with dead ends on what to do about the danger the colony is facing until she shares one crazy thought with them, a multi-phase tractor beam. They can't do it on the colony, but perhaps the Enterprise is powerful enough. In order to test her theory, she'll need to go to the Enterprise, which is a plan that does not sit well with Martin. He's all, but the founders, and Aaron is all, but we need to not all die. And Hannah beams up with Jordy and Deanna. Act 2. Deanna and Picard discuss the predicament. Many of the colonists may not be willing to leave, even if they have to. Picard sees the whole situation as an experiment gone poorly. The genetic engineering has bred out of these people the ability to deal with the unknown. Aaron may be of help, though. He's reasonable, and Deanna has struck up a friendship with him. Maybe she can convince him to convince others to leave when the time comes. The science experiments are coming along. There are flashing lights, beams, and cool technology happening in engineering. Hannah and Jordy are both exhausted and frustrated that nothing they do seems to get them the power they'll need without blowing out ship systems. When Jordy relaxes a moment, he takes off his visor, and it raises Hannah's curiosity. She's never seen a blind person before, since there are no blind people in the colony. She asks about how the visor works, and in explaining it, Jordy is hit with inspiration, sending short bursts of high energy through the tractor beam to avoid blowing it out. The irony is rich to him. The life-saving solution that may come from a technology that would have no reason to exist on the colony. On the surface, an evening piano concert by one of the colony's incredibly gifted children is interrupted by a sudden earthquake. Aaron and Deanna slip away, and he reiterates to her what is at stake here— these people won't survive by just taking them away. Everything about their lives on the colony is fully integrated, dependent on each other and the genetically determined roles they play. Deanna is full of concern. She has been acting, essentially, as Aaron's counselor, but she prefers the word friend. Aaron says friend isn't quite how he would put it, and he goes in for a romantic kiss. Act 3. All the science has been happening on the Enterprise. It's not perfect, but the modifications of the tractor beam will be able to move the stellar core at least a little bit. Since it's not quite enough to totally protect the colony, they'll also make some shield improvements down below. While Jordy and Hannah are off to make it so, Deanna is up early, plinking away on the piano from last night. She informs Aaron that she'll go back to the Enterprise, and this is the last time she'll see him. She's worried about getting involved, it can't happen professionally, and it can't happen when his life is centered around the colony and the genetic perfection they all adhere to. Before an uncomfortable conversation can get worse, Hannah and Jordy beam in with the good news. They can start with their plans right away. The bad news is that they will need to beam down about 50 crew members to help with installing the new shields, thus exposing their precious colony to more outsiders. Aaron gives the approval, and he sulks away, leaving Deanna. Act 4. Time for Science in Action. The tractor beam is fired up. It doesn't seem to be doing much until more and more power is diverted. Finally, there's a little budge, but those emitters keep blowing out, and it's even causing life support systems to fail on multiple decks. Just a little longer. As failure is imminent on all decks, there's enough of a move in the stellar core, 1.2 degrees, that they can shut off the tractor beam. 
It seems to be a success. Picard hails Aaron Connor to let him know the good news and congratulations in order all around. Aaron sings the praises of Hannah, promising a big party when she gets back home. Sounds great, except to Hannah, who seems a little unhappy at the idea of returning to the colony. Act 5. Goodbyes all around. The Enterprise crew are leaving Moab 4, and Aaron asks Riker to please say goodbye to Deanna on his behalf. Just as it all seems wrapped up, though, an alarm sounds. According to Hannah, there were tectonic shifts which have damaged the colony's biosphere. A failure is imminent. They may need to evacuate. In her lab, she seems very concerned, but Geordi sees right through her. Well, not literally. He, he literally sees the molecular structure of everything around him, which is definitely not falling apart. Why is she faking the crisis? Here's Hannah, a brilliant scientist who has learned more after a few days on the Enterprise than in her entire life on Moab 4. She's feeling stifled now that she's had a taste of a bigger world. Maybe she could get political asylum from the Enterprise. It's not impossible, but Picard and Deanna are a little worried. Sure, the colonists have free will, but if there is a mass exodus, it could topple what is left. Time for Picard to meet Aaron. In the turbo lift... Deanna confesses that she and the colony leader have had a relationship. She knows that she could have jeopardized the mission, which is why she called it off. Picard is understanding, though. Her intentions, and his, are in the right place. In the biosphere, Aaron meets Picard. He admits that he, too, has wondered about leaving his world. Curiosity has gotten the best of him. And what's worse, he sees this as a betrayal of his people and his principles. Picard says that he will present the colonists with a choice, but it is up to them whether they stay or go. And this terrifies Aaron, who has had his mind expanded but could see his civilization fail. In front of the gathered colonists, Aaron asks for a little time, perhaps six months, for them to see what happens, to weigh out the consequences. Hannah argues vociferously, the era of the colony is over and six months won't make any difference other than giving opportunity for the others to pressure her. Deanna and Aaron talk again. He expresses his worry of rebuilding the colony while losing some of their best people, but he doesn't regret what has happened. After all, he met and fell in love with Deanna. In his ready room, Picard contemplates what has happened. Twenty-three people have left the colony. Even if the Prime Directive didn't fully apply here, the very presence of the Enterprise has permanently disrupted their way of life. The end. I feel terrible for what I'm about to do. What is that? Well, you know how we'll see something sometimes and we're like, oh, it's so funny, they thought they would still be using tape. Or, oh, they thought they would still have, you know, cameras as opposed to cameras that are attached to their pads that are attached to, you know, whatever. You, you mean the kind of, like, technological conversation that kicks off, like, a million pedantic tweets and uh, <laughs> Facebook conversations? Hey, like this one's about to do. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. We don't use the Richter scale in the 24th century. In fact, technically, for an earthquake the size of the kind they're talking about, we don't use the Richter scale today. Mm, mm -hmm. So if you type in the question on Google, uh, do we use the Richter scale, the answer you get back from Google, which references a site from the New Mexico Bureau of Geology and Mineral Resources, mm -hmm. uh, the answer you get back is um, no, not quite. Do we still use the Richter scale? No, not quite. There are two ways in which scientists uh, quantify the size of earthquakes, magnitude and intensity. 
Hmm. You probably heard the Richter scale, which is uh, still used for small earthquakes, but most large earthquakes are now commonly reported using the moment magnitude scale. Wow. And and the thing is, this was actually before Star Trek The Next Generation. I want to say something I read said that we actually adopted this officially in the 70s. Hmm. Now, I worked in a newsroom in early 2000s mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and I would still regularly hear people say something about the Richter scale. Now, maybe for like a 2.5, 3.4, something like that, maybe that's small enough that you still go Richter scale there. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to bet almost nobody knows that we don't technically use the Richter scale for a big earthquake today. Hmm. But but for people who do know that from now on, Star Trek is ruined for you. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime now that there's an earthquake and data says, oh, it's two, it's 8.7 on the Richter scale, I expect Picard to go, really, Mr. Data? Really? Feeling anachronistic today, are we? Yes, please. Tell me more about the Richter scale. And then afterwards, let's tune in the hi-fi and see if we can pick up some Steely Dan or something. Yeah. Which, of course, would be classical music. It will, it will be. But you'll <laughs> never hear it on the show. That's true. Uh, what you're saying is uh, never go full, Richter. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, let's do the other one. Richter? Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I hardly know I know. Okay. Yeah, there you mm-hmm. go. All right. Yeah. So... Yeah. Sorry, it's so stupid. And honestly, that is quite possibly the most pedantic thing I've ever said on this show. No, that's fine. That's fine. As long as we get about 100 messages that all begin with the word actually, (laughs) then then your job is done here. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not checking email this week. Are you? No, no, I'll be gone. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So question for you, Ken. How bad is Starfleet at keeping records? I mean, finding a lost colony is super cool. Like, if yeah. you could do that, that is really cool. But those colonists are human. They had to get from Earth to Moab somehow. I'm going to guess on a ship mm-hmm. of some sort. And uh, and they built things. And they had an early subspace transmitter. Yeah. Um, they had all these things. You would think You would think that just kind of at some point, unless those genetic supermen were really good at hiding their tracks. Maybe that's what it was. Well, you remember what a crazy time the eugenics wars were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this was well after the eugenics wars. Well, it's only about 100 years after the eugenics wars, I think. Yeah. Because those were, I believe, around like the late 90s, early 2000s, around the time that I was learning about, you know, who uses Richter scale properly and who doesn't. <laughs> uh, around that time is when the whole eugenics wars things happened. And then remember... But, like, we're already so removed from what happened then, because the eugenics wars were before World War Three, right? Right, right. Okay. And, and now we're going to guess, though, that this stuff happened in the 2160s, around mm. there. They've been out there a couple of hundred years. Yes. So if, and let's just say, purely hypothetically, like, if I were to <laughs> pretend that there was other Star Trek that came after this, yeah. maybe I would set, like, an early exploration team on an early ship in, like, the 2150s. Okay. I have no idea what you're referring to. Good, good. Then you'll be very excited when we get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My point is, I think it probably was pretty hard to keep up with for a while. Mm, mm -hmm. I'm just saying. All right. Especially especially if what their plan was, oh, by the way, we're going to go there and we never want to be visited and we don't want anybody to leave. So, (laughs) so yeah, you know, I think they, I'm willing to cut them some slack on that. As I say, uh, Earth was a chaotic place before, you know, we actually established and got going with the Federation. Um, one of our listeners, interestingly enough, pointed out uh, sort of a, the, the ethical crisis that Deanna has about her relationship when she talks to Picard. Um, so she talks about the relationship that she had with Aaron 
And it seems to our, our listener that Riker does this kind of thing all the time. And he <laughs> wanted to know if this was a bit of a double standard. Um, Riker offers the full Riker all the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't think of a time actually where he did that where it stood to jeopardize a mission. Hmm. She knows that they're dealing with a race of people that are practically xenophobic, right? Or a society that's practically xenophobic that certainly doesn't want... They're concerned about, look, if I leave here for too long, there's a beetle over there that's going to be affected. Mm -hmm. And there's a microbe someplace that needs me here. So I can't leave the colony. But then she's just going to come down and, you know, mess around with this guy. And and not mess around with him. That's the other thing. I mean, it's... Because I thought originally that you were saying, like, or that the, the listener who wrote in was saying... Riker sleeps with people all the time and doesn't have to apologize. Why does the woman have to? Right, right. I I was thinking it was a question of, well, I didn't think, I thought her apology was about the fact that she was actually, you know, falling in love with the guy as opposed to just fooling around, which I don't think you could really accuse Riker of falling in love with too many of the people. Maybe he falls (laughs) in love with all of them, I can't say. But, but, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I can't think of a time, the only time I can think of actually where Riker had a relationship with someone that was important in an away mission was on Angel One. It, that that was the first one that popped into my head too. Yeah, but she basically pushed him into that. Not pushed him into it, but I mean, she invited him, and he mm-hmm. was a willing participant. He mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. didn't go down, fall in love, mess up what was happening. No, but just the very fact that there are relationships of some level of intimacy beyond just maybe the simple diplomatic. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not really a diplomatic technique that, say, Picard uses. <laughs> you know? No, it's not. It's not a diplomatic uh, technique that anybody uses, though, is my point. I mean, mm-hmm. Riker, mm-hmm. Riker will try to offer the full Riker wherever he is, whenever he is. That's that's like his thing. This is not Deanna's thing. And I, and I have no problem believing that if she had like landed on some other planet and met a guy and was turned on by him that she would go ahead and, and go off and canoodle or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, she is now with the leader of this colony, this colony of people that, you know, are supposed to be these, you know, standoffish, stay away, xenophobic, whatever. And I guess kind of in fairness to her, she says to him, this is wrong. Yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was very much a, you know, secret love sort of, no, this is wrong. You know, <laughs> saying, not just like, oh, wow, we're really going to screw everything up. Um, I think if she'd actually presented it to him that way, maybe, but eh, I don't know. I didn't actually see a, I guess I didn't see a double standard in it at all because Riker is not, with the exception of Angel One, I can't think of, you know, the head of any colony that he's like, um, well, Riker, their society. Riker, Riker is good. I like that. Yeah. I, I do have to say though, I absolutely hand it to Picard. He is a different guy now than the captain that we met in Encounter at Farpoint. Mm-hmm. He was so understanding with Worf when Alexander came on board. This is not really a thing that we got into, because, but those scenes happened a couple of times with yeah. Worf kind of groveling and Picard saying, no, look, do what you have to do. This is important. And he is equally understanding about Deanna's relationship with Aaron. He handles that, I think, really beautifully. It was really kind yeah. of nice to see. It was very cool. Now, speaking of Aaron, he says, um, very little that is unexpected occurs here. <laughs> no, right away, any new thing, and in this case, Deanna being the new thing for Aaron, will appeal to the colonists. I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't happened before. Surprised that there wasn't a desire to explore. Unless maybe drive and some level of wonder has been bred out of existence and compliance 
has sort of overtaken them. Um, the thing that I don't see as a problem is letting any of the colonists on the Enterprise, even if they see technologies they don't have, they're still programmed to live where they are. Even if they develop new ideas, those ideas will adapt to the situation of where they are. Well, apparently not. I mean, you saw what happened to Hannah. Yeah, well, I mean, Hannah's, yeah, Hannah's got certain interests. But I mean, I, my worry is that, you know, they could have exercised the ability to just keep Hannah where she is. And Hannah, Hannah learned new things on the Enterprise, but those things would have been adapted to their life on Moab 4. Well, yeah, except she wants to know more. She wants to learn more. I mean, what I thought yeah. of, I mean, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen 10 Ford? <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> right. much my thing, right? Yeah, once yeah. you can look out the window and you can see the stellar core, as opposed to looking out the window and seeing the vast wasteland in which their you know, little habitat is built. Mm-hmm. I mean, then how how can you not expect them to, to want to see more and do more? And, I mean, unless they've been truly conditioned, but that's a... I don't know. We might get we might get back into that later. I don't know. Maybe we will. Yeah. Hey, here's a funny thing that we I, I don't know if we've pointed it out before or not, but um, it's kind of weird and funny on Star Trek how people who are beaming up from anywhere, even if mm-hmm. they've never been transported before, will step away and sort of assume the pose as if they're beaming up. So <laughs> the, the very first time the people on Moab 4, they have just now for the first time in their lives seen people beam down, right? Right. And then you introduce Hannah. Right. Hannah presumably did not see them beam down. But as soon as she gets permission to go up to the ship, she just she kind of takes a little turn away and steps up onto like a little platform in that room. Like It's like a stone step up. And she just stands there facing forward ready. And the others sort of assume the position around her. It's pretty great. It's like she's never been beamed up, but she sure has seen an episode of Star Trek before. Well, no, she actually did watch somebody. I can't remember if she watched them beam down or beam up, but but I remember the look of wonder on her face, oh, actually. That's because, right. Because yeah. I wondered why Aaron hadn't gone to get her, saying, hey, Hannah, they're, they're going to do the coolest thing. You can see this. It's like, <laughs> this is like so, this is a you thing right here. Come, right. Watch what's going to happen. Right. But yeah, I mean, she did sort of, you know, watch. It would have been funny, though, if like just for fun, record had been like, so what you do is you like, you run around like crazy and wave your arms all about, <laughs> you know, and so then right. the first time she shows up on the Enterprise, she's just like, blah, 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 going crazy right. and uh, <laughs> that would be nice. That'd be kind of amusing. Um, I had a question about uh, sort of the forebearers, the, the people who set up this colony. Mm-hmm. Who decided about all the stuffy jobs that would need to be filled in the future? I mean, we have the strict interpreter of the laws. Okay, I can see where you would need that. A diplomat, I can see where you would need that. A scientist, absolutely. Yep. A classical pianist, really. Mm, yeah. We need a classical pianist, do we? we do. And then I wondered, like, is there a red light district on the planet anywhere or in the, in the, like, the colony anywhere? Like, uh, so this is Candy. She's been bred to be one of our <laughs> finest adult entertainers. Really one of the finest in the known galaxies, as far as anyone here knows. Yeah, right. What, what, who decided what jobs needed to be present? And, and what happens if some of those jobs and the necessity for some of those jobs are gone after a couple of centuries? Well, that's never going to happen. No, I mean, really, no. I, how could it? How could it possibly? I mean, what Hannah said was, you know, she's been raised to be one of the brightest scientific minds, but of course, they've got no outside influence. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a relatively small colony, so you don't have to worry a lot about, you know, interstellar communication or even transcontinental communication. If you can communicate from one end of the colony to the other, you're pretty much good. Uh, so you don't need the smaller, faster, cheaper thing that happens with technology today, right? Yeah, yeah. Even true. today. I mean, because, I mean, they, they've got a pretty insular society there. What I was trying to figure out is what's the point of building a paradise 
if you can't bring other people to it, nor if you can go out and share it or share what you find. It's just, hmm. it's like, oh, we're going to, we're going to build a race of super people and not to really do anything, hmm. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. just to kind of hang out and be groovy. But, uh, but they have to do that all by themselves. They can't, they can't share their grooviness with anyone. Yeah. Well, and that is kind of the inherent paradox here is that there really isn't any progress, even though they have these people who have these brilliant scientific minds. You know, there is no reason for Hannah to invent a transporter. There is no reason for Hannah to invent certain technologies. Like you said, you know, they're not going to have a need. And as Jordy points out, with necessity being the mother of invention, there's not a whole lot of new necessity there. We're we're kind of crossing a little bit into kind the next of segment, I think. Yeah. But, but, I mean, I will say, so it is not until they have Jordy's visor that they come up with the actual mechanics of how the whole thing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the idea was Hannah's there by herself. She's like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we spotted the stellar core coming in, and I thought to myself, gee, what if we could do, like, a, something, a trends? I can't remember what it was now. It was it was tech the tech. Yeah, but she had did. a tech the tech idea that Jordy did not have. Now, her idea was improved by the technology in Jordy's visor, yeah, but she had the initial idea. So I mean, they're they're on an island. They're not in a vacuum. I mean, they have been advancing somewhat, but you're right. They're not gonna they're not gonna get the aha moment. Although, again, she got the aha moment. She just didn't have the uh, she didn't have the hardware to do it, and she did need that extra boost of uh, Jordy's visor as well. Um, see, a couple of things to point out. I, I really like the Picard and Aaron scene. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think it was amazing but but there was something good that was the sort of underlying motivation that Aaron wants the sort of the burden of decision lifted from him Picard points it out he calls it out later in the scene he would just rather that Picard make the decision for him it's a great position to put him in as the leader who mm-hmm. has been the perfect leader for however long he has been that leader um, but there's a shift in the power dynamic in that scene, which is really cool to watch. Um, so that that was one that I liked going back and watching, you know, multiple times for this show. Mm-hmm. And I have to say another thing that, you know, in the end, with, with the final assessment, which this is not giving away how I feel about the episode, but just the story, I actually don't feel too bad for the colonists. Hmm. You know, they, they all have, uh, you know, as I might have heard someone say recently, they have great brains. They said a lot of things. They got great brains. Uh, <laughs> seriously, though, I mean, Picard's Picard's concern is well-intentioned, but they are human and they will adapt. Uh, they were so presumptuous to assume that everyone was in the right position, but those positions will shift and will allow others to excel. Hmm. So, I, you know, I, I feel like Picard's concern is right. He is right to be concerned. But there must have been adaptations that they were making anyway all along. They might have been little because, again, Hannah didn't have to invent a transporter. Mm -hmm. But there are still little adaptations based on what has happened to them over the last two centuries. It it might be a tough road to hoe. I mean, I'm I'm not kidding myself with that. But um, I, I don't feel as bad for them as Picard seemed to. You give me a tiny bit of hope for the feeders of all. (laughs) <laughs> a very, very tiny bit of hope. Well, they, they weren't human, though. But it's more than I've ever had. Well. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't know their backgrounds. Sort yeah. of oompa loompa I know. Yeah. I, um, I will say, for a diplomat, I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm with Aaron in like his last interaction with uh, Troy. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he's talking about, yeah, man, there are so many women that I could have fallen in love with. Perhaps it's your imperfections that make you so unique. And I just wanted her to be like, um, thank you. I, you know, I'm, I'm leaving now. And I thought it would be nice to leave, but I'll tell you what, I'm just going to go. One assumes that there are no games or sports on Moab 4. Each boxer would be as good as the other. Each chess player would be a grandmaster. And beauty pageants? How could one ever choose? Deanna is right though. Their hotels would be five star. All of them. So I got to say the, the parts to talk about in this show start early and come often. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Jordy calling Martin out for his air of superiority. <laughs> Just right at the top, right? Uh, Martin yeah. says, no one in our society would be blind. No offense intended. And Jordy doesn't say none taken. He says, I can see you just fine, sir. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. See also genteel racism, sexism, classism, like anything. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, no, I, and nothing against you. I'm just saying everyone like you would be dead in my perfect society. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He's like, oh, none taken? Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, what I also found interesting about that exchange is uh, Aaron says that Martin's exchange with Jordy demonstrates that there are still a few imperfections that they're working on, but um, in a closed society, I mean, mm-hmm. would they really? I mean, in a seriously closed society. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're obviously fine with people of different races because there's Martin, an African, uh, well, there's Martin, a black individual, I guess. He's not African-American. What would it be? African Moab, I suppose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's African. And who can say? Maybe he's an Islander from way, way, way back in the day. Anyway, there's yep. a black guy and a white guy standing there, and they're working just fine, right? Mm-hmm. But Idik is not really a you know a thing for them. No, and so I got to think that Aaron is really just being diplomatic, which is of course what he was raised for, um, yeah, telling the new people what he senses or figures that they would want to hear. Like, wow, that was that was kind of intolerant, Martin. We we really need to work on that <laughs> until the interlopers are gone. You know, it, mm-hmm. it just it struck me as an interesting it was an interesting exchange all around. But my yeah. favorite line of the whole thing was Jordy going. I can see you find her. Oh, this delivery is great on yeah, it's that. It's very nice. It's very <laughs> I nice. love it. Well, Ken, I think you hit on, you know, one of the uh, fun topics for today, eugenics. Um, Yay! <laughs> let's just, yeah, let's just get that right out uh, in front here. Um, so we've referenced that on our show before, and Star Trek has referenced that on Star Trek before, especially, oh, I don't know, Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the first times we really talked about it. Now, when in, you know, the real world and in popular culture the subject comes up, you're usually referencing back to the Nazi regime and its terrible philosophy um but this reminded me of something that i watched very recently um that is a uh, much newer example of this than discussing world war ii history so there's this documentary called the red chapel featuring uh jacob nocell and simon jewell who are two dutch comedians who were adopted from korea okay so the korean born Mm-hmm. But they were adopted by a Dutch family, and they were raised as Dutch, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, they're comedians. They're young guys. They're, like, in their 20s, you know? And um, they were allowed, with a film crew, to go to North Korea, to go to Pyongyang, as sort of a cultural exchange. And they were going to do a comedy show there. Well, 
they're doing this thing under the pretense of a comedy show, but they have a film crew with them. They're filming everything that happens along with them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's complicate matters a little bit more here. Jacob has cerebral palsy. And he is, uh, because their entire crew has to have handlers, as an outsider does when visiting North Korea, he has a handler who's a, a middle-aged woman who, um, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, she lost a son. And she takes this very motherly attitude toward him. Hmm. And at, at one point, he says that he feels like he's being smothered. But at another point, he sort of appreciates the attention, right? And the most chilling thing in this documentary, which is, by the way, hilarious and fascinating, and it completely toys with your perceptions from from one way to another and and you can kind of feel the manipulations but in a good way he asks her very innocently and very sincerely have you ever met anyone like me and she says there's no one like you here now sure he's an interesting funny young guy have you met anybody like me? No. Well, we don't have too many comedians here who are Dutch, who are Korean. But what she says and what you see is that, no, there is no one with cerebral palsy in North Korea. And walking around the streets of Pyongyang, you will not see anyone with any disability because horrible things happen to them to this day this documentary was made in i believe 2009 somewhere mm. around there um so this is this is modern where this is early 21st century this is sort of still happening today um so that put a very fine point on this sort of you know science fiction fantasy version that we're talking about here this is a real world example of this happening now um now, it was interesting to me that as deeply as the people on Moab for dedicated to the plan of eugenics that has been set out for them, they don't seem to take into account, you know, random mutation and and maybe a drop of hardiness of their stock without fresh genetic material to uh, to replenish. Um, we did talk about this a little bit before um, up the long ladder with the Bring Lloydy. Mm-hmm. Remember, and the, and the Mariposans, how they, they kind of calculated out <laughs> how quickly the Mariposans would fail because they don't have new genetic stock coming in. Maybe these scientists were a little better at, at randomizing. And I guess we did learn a little bit about, uh, you know, Jordy saying, well, even if a cell, even if the genetic material was known that, that I would be blind or that somebody born on your world would be blind, that... Um, that cell would not be allowed to turn into a human being. Uh, It's also interesting to me that they're fully invested in the idea that their genetics play a role in their professional lives. So genetics may be able to answer for a lot in certain traits, but they're also forcing that to then mean, well, well, this person's genetic makeup means that they are a leader. And in real life, that doesn't, really necessarily play out if i've read this as sort of being like the racehorse theory that well if you have two great racehorses that breed then their offspring by default will be a great racehorse as well Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily the case it's not exactly how genetics work 
but I guess there's been enough manipulation here at Moab 4 that we are to believe that that, that is how they have um, contrived their society. Well, he actually did say to Deanna that they have enough genetic diversity that they're able to, that they're able to handle that. I mean, mm-hmm. which which is not to say, I mean, so then if we actually sit down and try to figure out, okay, well, how big is it and how many people were there and how would they actually do that? The writers sort of like, the writers basically took that part off the table mm-hmm. at, at mm-hmm. this point. I mean, there, that's not going to be an issue. I got to say really quickly, though, because we're likely to forget again, mm-hmm. uh, the episode that you just named, Up the Long Ladder, is yeah. actually one where Riker fooled around with somebody that could actually have screwed up the entire <gasps> yes. episode. Yes. I can't remember her right. name, but she was lovely. And, you know, she mm-hmm. was supposed to, I can't remember, he's like, he was supposed to wash her feet, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Isn't that the deal? And they're like, yeah. why do you still have your clothes on? You're supposed to be washing my feet. <laughs> right. Okay, maybe, could we call it something else then? Because I really thought it was, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, they, did, yeah. they, did, they did address that part, though, with the they, whole... Do they, they, they do. They yeah. They they say oh, okay. We got that handled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, the other thing that sort of stuck out to me is that you know these people are the best and the brightest. But I wondered among them was anybody sort of like Mirror Spock. So you remember Mirror Spock at the end of Mirror Mirror? He said, "Okay, look, I, I'm the logical one here, and even though I live in this crazy mixed up universe, even I can see that the evil Federation." will fall in probably a couple hundred years. Right. Because that's where this will get us. I wonder who on Moab 4, being among the best and the brightest and having the the most analytical and scientific minds, could also see the illogic of staying where they were. Well, I'd say at the very least the 23 people who left. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe. I who knows? So. Maybe yeah. maybe they just left because they wanted to leave. Maybe they just left because they couldn't stand being cooped up. Because they knew about 10 forward. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, because they'd seen it. Yeah. Two for one drinks at happy hour. Um, <laughs> it's possible, though, that some of the people left because they thought, well, this is unsustainable. See, there's there's so much, though. Like when you said the whole thing about, okay, so their genetics are actually tied into how well they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, Picard actually talked about the fact that they had taken a scientific uh, scientific experiment and turned it into dogma. Yeah. I mean, they've come to believe I, – I find it very hard to believe that just Deanna standing there for just a minute – I mean, unless she is carrying some sort of pathogen, which, of course, she can't be because the the transporter would you know take that out because the writers are taking care of that too – I mean, when they say that we're part of this, you know, every leaf, every bug, every microbe, every whatever. Mm-hmm. Eh, no, not really, though. <laughs> that's the thing. You just think so because you're so. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of like it's almost like a little Benny Jesuit thing happening there. Right. Like, you know, it, it, convincing them for hundreds of years that not only should they want to be the best that they can possibly be, they shouldn't even think about leaving because thinking about leaving would lead to, you know, the ruin of everything. And it wouldn't necessarily, mm-hmm. although, you know, taking out 23 people, if those 23 people have an important part to play, I mean, certainly could have a a negative effect, maybe not a destructive effect, not completely destructive, but could have a negative effect anyway. I think you're touching on a topic that, that I might come back to at some point, which is to say that there's an interesting intersection here of not just the scientific experiment that's going on, but the underlying ideology of it, which is that these people have to convince themselves every single day that this is the be all and end all, that they are superior in every way, that there is no better <laughs> thing outside of their bubble. <laughs> you know? Oh, you see, I don't think they have to convince themselves of that. I think you know, there's something inherent and in that makes them think that Moab 4 is great. 
Well, belief isn't necessarily inherent, but I mean, but but this well, is something that is so so structured, so built into who right. they are. You right. know that that uh, call it indoctrination if you like, but but yes. whatever. This is sort of is their reality. Is that I'm sure that every child from the time that they can read, which is very early on this place, because they are all so superior, um, <laughs> they are told right away that they are superior to all those other uh, undesirables who live elsewhere in the universe, and um, you wouldn't want to dirty your doorstep with them. Oh, see, I think you're I think you're assuming a lot about that. I think there are ways, whatever. I didn't get mm. Nazi supermen off this. I didn't get con supermen off this. I no, got, no, no. They're a little more benevolent. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. when Martin says that they've, you know, they've evolved beyond them, he's talking specifically about Jordy. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about humans in general. He's not talking about beings in general. He's talking about where he says we're perfect, but he's, he's, you know, carrying a few extra pounds around on him. I don't think they're perfect in the way that Khan thought of himself as perfect. I think he means, I mean, not that it's good. Don't misunderstand me. But mm. I, you're sort of doing a Nazi supermen or our superiors kind of thing to it that I don't think they necessarily felt. I mean, because if that's what they felt, then Moab 4 just would have been their launching pad. It wouldn't have been, you know, the place that they want to go and be left alone. It would have been the place from which... You know, they spend across the galaxy taking over things. No, well, they can still be hermits. I mean, they can still hang out on Moab 4, and, you know, but uh, just never, ever want to be uh, sullied with communication from anyone else and shudder to think, you know, shaking hands with somebody from another place. Again, like you pointed out, they've they've got a real edit problem. They have a shortage of. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Although it's weird because normally we think of that as being racial diversity, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely not that in this case. I'm curious what you thought of the conversation between uh, Troy and Picard, because I honestly had a problem with it and continue to have a problem with it. Um, mm-hmm. It's the part where they're discussing whether they would want to live in a society mm-hmm. like the one on Moab for. Uh, no surprise that Picard, captain of a starship, sings Don't Fence Me In while he's in the shower, right? Well, yeah, because, I mean, because that's public domain, so of course. Yeah. <laughs> don't Fence Me In is not public domain. I don't know. I don't believe oh, so. I thought I would be at this point. Yeah, okay, maybe. Right, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, he's got a bit of Kirkitis, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He comes across this planet, and they're doing things differently than he thinks they ought to be doing things. And so they've destroyed their humanity. They've practically given up on being humans anymore. But where Kirk would have either found a way to trick them or force them off the planet, um, <laughs> Picard, you know, is willing to say, hey, it, it's not my thing, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's not the way life should be as I see it. So he seems to be conceding that maybe what the colonists have done is right for them. Deanna, on the other hand, doesn't know how to feel about being raised in such a society, doesn't know how she would feel about it, except I think she does. Because, I mean, while she wouldn't choose it, it's nothing that any of them chose, Right. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, being an empath, my assumption is that she has felt the the peace, the contentedness, maybe even the self-actualization that everybody on that planet feels until mm-hmm. Hannah takes off, until Hannah actually, you know, beams up. And maybe, you know, once Aaron has decided, well, she can't be here and I have to be here, but that doesn't work for me anymore. Those are really the only two. And then once everybody starts meeting all the other scientists as well. But initially, everybody seems fine with it. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, what Picard seems to be forgetting is he would have been bred, raised, taught, trained, and groomed to be exactly what he was, quote, meant to be. Hmm. And he would want to be that thing. 
but it's 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 very difficult to stand on this side of that, you know, hmm. the side that you and I are on, the side that Picard is on at that point, the side that Deanna is on at that point. Except Deanna can actually feel what they're feeling, right? Or she can at least yeah. sense what they're feeling. What Picard is saying is like, wow, I'm captain of a starship and you now expect me to just stay there and do whatever you tell me? Well, no. <laughs> You're going to be raised to be the greatest vintner that your family has ever produced. Or, you know, heck, you're going to be raised to be the greatest starship captain that anyone's ever produced. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what I think society should be. I'm not saying that's what I think society would want. But they've, they've set up this thing that, like, worked really well to a point. And Picard seemed to only be able to see it, you know, through his own lens, whereas Deanna can see it through, she can see it through the eyes of the, um, she can see it through the eyes of the colonists, it seems. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, well, there's definitely a truth to what you're saying. You know, if, if you were to ask anybody, uh, you know, okay, what what's it like growing up like this? You know, what what's it like being from, well, take take you and me, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. What was it like growing, growing up in the South? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I didn't grow up in the North, so I can't tell you exactly you know what these specific differences are what these specific things are that you're going after because i didn't live two experiences so right. i can only tell you my perspective from my experience people on moab 4 only have one experience they only have the life that they know picard only has the life that he knows so yeah it is a little unfair to just say well well i would want this well of course picard wants that because that is picard that is the life that he knows right i think what's interesting is that even from the beginning diana being the empath we didn't have her do a classic Deanna thing, which is to say to Picard, hey, Aaron's deeply conflicted about this. Or, hey, uh, Martin is desperate for power <laughs> and desperate to get anybody away from here. And he hates everybody from the Enterprise. You know, well, the, Mar Martin was pretty open saying that himself, though. Wasn't he, he pretty much was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was. But, not, he was not a difficult read. No. <laughs> No, uh, but but that is the kind of thing that maybe, you know, fortunately, the episode doesn't necessitate it, but we're only watching the episode from the perspective the writers give us. Picard is only getting the information that Deanna is telling him. And if Deanna had said, like, hey, by the way, these scientists that I've been talking to, they they're feeling a little uneasy about staying at Moab for, hey, they're really curious about us and all may not be as it seems on the surface. Um, something that I found really interesting about this episode is the varying reactions among those people who are faced with the idea that they're going to die. So we primarily played out between Aaron and Martin um, mm -hmm. and, and to a lesser extent by Hannah, but some are sort of in deep denial about the reality of their situation changing, and some are able to sort of see the possibility of changing course and maybe doing that very easily. There's not really a clear right or wrong in terms of what the two sides are trying to do here. You know, the colonists do have every right to stay where they are, and the Enterprise crew have every right to be concerned and maybe to interfere to a point. But I think more interesting than just the debate is just the idea of seeing how these people will play it out. That maybe gets back to the point that I was making earlier is that how the underlying ideologies express themselves and what's going on here. That That's kind of the, the thing that I found cool. 
And also, I, I have this really weird fascination with experimental societies. There are so many utopian communities that sprang up in the 19th century in particular, mm -hmm. and they all have the intention of reaching for some higher ideal, a better way of life for the people who live there. And they almost all inevitably fail and fail spectacularly. You know, you could make a couple of exceptions and talk about the shakers and, and some of the current um, religious sects that that live a little separated from the rest of of modern society mm -hmm. um but it, it's sort of this pervasive message when you see that historically that it's tough to get people on board with the same way of thought about everything because you simply can't account for every variable no matter how hard you try so we can judge the limits of the moab colony but at a certain point I kind of turn the same light back on the Federation and think, uh, okay, we're still assuming that everyone here shares similar values and adherence to certain ideals, has certain capabilities. You know, it's sort of on a bigger scale, at least what we see of how the Federation operates. Except, I mean, the Federation does have the whole edict thing, right? They do. I mean, th there's nobody in the Moab colony, as far as we know, who doesn't think that what they're doing is the absolute best thing they could possibly be doing, because that's how they're raised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the Federation, you want to be Vulcan and non-emotional? Great. Be that thing. You want to be, well, I can't think of a totally emotional, well, humans, I guess. You want to mm -hmm, keep your mm -hmm. emotions? Great. You can still be part of the Federation. You can still work towards sort of a... That's the thing. They're not really working for a common cause. I mean, basically, the Federation goes someplace and says, hey, you seem kind of groovy. You want to be groovy with us? And if they say, yeah, I want to be groovy with you, it's like, great. Okay, keep dressing how you dress. Keep speaking how you speak. Keep believing whatever you believe. And, you know, just adhere to these, you know, a few grooviness principles. Oh, and also, if we get in a fight, have my back. <laughs> That's kind of it, right? I mean, which is a very different thing than um, – it's a very different thing than – well, the Shakers and the Quakers and the and the and the candlestick makers, uh, the the people from Moab Four. Yeah. I mean, they have to they have to have a a their philosophy has to be in lockstep. Whereas in the Federation, your philosophies have to be relatively similar. Relatively, they don't have to be exactly the same. It seems to me. Yeah, there, there is a certain amount of buy-in that that you have to get, and you know when the Federation shows up at a planet that seems great on the surface, but then maybe discovers some horrible thing lurking in their society, like oh, hey, you guys seem great. Oh, you still have slaves? That that's weird. Yeah, that's not really on board with how the Federation operates. We're gonna we're gonna take a pass, and we're gonna hope you get that worked out, and stop being horrible exploiters of others and we'll we'll come back kind of along a similar line actually i found myself wondering um about something that jordy had said i'm going to tie it into another conversation i had with some friends recently okay um jordy says uh when he's talking about uh the fact that he would not live on moab 4 he would mm -hmm. not have been allowed to be born on moab 4 he says who gave them the right to decide whether i should be here whether i have anything to contribute mm -hmm. what i found interesting was um Every now and then I come across a conversation that makes me wonder that about anyone. See, it's interesting. You talk about the fact that, you know, these utopian societies don't work. I would argue that the non-utopian societies that we have going today don't necessarily work for everyone either. There mm -hmm. are some people for whom they work fairly well. I would say for you and me, they work fairly well. Mm -hmm. There are some people for whom they work amazingly well. I would say that's <laughs> like the 1%, 2%, those sure. people that we hear so much about. Yeah. And then there are some people for whom they work horribly. 
Yeah. And 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 really probably the only ones who would have bought in as you said a minute ago because <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that term now I'm going to use it all for the rest yeah. of the show. Go right ahead. Probably the only people who would have bought in exactly the way they are today would be those 1 to 2%. And again, things work kind of okay for you and me. They're fine. They're they're mm-hmm. probably better than fine. I mean mm-hmm. certainly they're better than fine compared to most other places on the planet or maybe half the planet, let's say. But when Jordy asked that question, I couldn't help thinking about um, I was talking to a couple of friends recently about the idea of generation ships. Now, for people mm. who don't know what a generation ship is, uh, it's basically the idea that you are on a planet and you want to go to another planet that's like, you know, 300 light years away or something like that. Uh, it's going to take hundreds and hundreds of years to get there. And so what you do is you put together a society that's going to live on the ship. And, of course, they're not all going to live all the way. They're going to grow older. They're going to die. But they're going to procreate. They're going to teach their kids to do the jobs that need to be done. So that over the course of generations, on the way to this next place, uh, you're going to be able to, you know, keep the mission going. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked over all the aspects of it. We talked over the engineering, the biological, the societal, and the ethical. And and one of the people that I was talking with uh, wondered at one point, you know, at what point these future generations would resent or rebel against the idea that just because people decided something generations ago, now now these people live the lives that they live – but is that not true for every single one of us? Hmm. I mean, if we're lucky, we're either raised well or we break free of a bad upbringing. If we're unlucky, we lead lives of quiet desperation or worse. Uh, you know, I mean, I can't think from uh, neckties, <laughs> <laughs> language, currency. I mean, mm-hmm. we all live lives that are the way they are because people before us decided and 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 that's obviously very different than what Jordy's talking about because Jordy wouldn't be alive. But it's just fascinating to me when people say, "Well, who decided that?" that every now and then, I, I kind of go like, "Well, come to think of it, <laughs> who decided all of it?" Sure. I mean, so I mean, your 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 treatment of the of the idea of the utopian society, and, and we say that most of them failed. I mean, compared to what? Yeah, right. They ran their course. You know, maybe, maybe they ended, but I mean, it's only because ours seems to have no real goal <laughs> that mm. you can't really say ours didn't fail because we're all still here. Although there are, you know, <sighs> abandoned houses and people evicted and people living under bridges. And, you know, I'm not 100% certain you can say that the unplanned society uh, is any great shakes either. Works out well for some, but, you know, it's not not doing everything that maybe you would want a society to do. Man, see, now you're making me think of Omicron SETI 3 again. Oh, I love that place. Dude, <laughs> I love that place. Are you kidding well, me? No, I mean, well, that's a couple of things. You know, we're we're sort of asking about the relative level of happiness. What we have to go on is Aaron saying, well, we're happy because we're fulfilled, because uh, we're doing exactly what we think we should be doing. And you've also got an empath there who's like, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. By, the, mm-hmm. by the way, Omicron SETI 3, for people who don't remember... Uh, this side of paradise. That was with the uh, spore huffers. That was with the whole, you know, we're all happy and we're living forever. Mm-hmm. But Kirk doesn't like it. So now we all have to go. First, he has to shake us out of it. And then we have to go. The the show that launched 10,000 emails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yeah. That is, that's the one John's referring to. Uh, but um, I, I, I tend to think... You know, I wondered if at a certain point the colonists were too married to the idea that their world defines who they are. 
because it comes back to this conundrum, I guess you have about, well, whose definition of happiness are we going by? We talked about Picard to Picard, uncertainty and self-discovery and the unknown. These are the things that drive Picard. One might say these are the things that make Picard happy, or at least in his words, make life worth living. Mm -hmm. Well, those are not things that the people on Moab 4 have. Right. I guess they seem fulfilled. They say that they're fulfilled. Deanna tells us that they're fulfilled. Yeah. Well, um, she doesn't tell us they're not. I mean, mm-hmm, nobody mm-hmm. actually asked her. But generally speaking, if they go someplace where somebody's hiding something like that, if you have an oppressed people or something, she'll turn to the captain and say, he's hiding something. Right. Right. And we don't get that from her. In fact, she seems she seems everybody seems to be doing exactly what they what they want to do and saying exactly how they feel would be the indication because she doesn't say anything you know, to the contrary. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing, though. I mean, well, it, it's funny. Uh, Omicron City 3 actually comes up a little bit later. So, spoiler, <laughs> or Easter egg, or foreshadowing, or whatever. <laughs> I want to Really quickly, there's something really uh, noble and wonderful about the willingness of the Enterprise to risk their own lives to save the lives and way of life of another people. Yeah. I thought that was really fantastic. And there's certainly something dangerous about having only one person or a small group of people or maybe a cast of people that can do a thing. And I'm, I'm a little torn on this one. I'm a little confused on this one. Hmm. Hannah says, we're all going to die. And Aaron's like, well, OK, let's leave. Right. Because mm-hmm. she's the scientist and she says there's a crack in this thing. And yeah, it's all going under. And Aaron knows that he knows no better. Right. Right. And, and he apparently has no way to check Hannah's work. And where I get confused is, I mean, what he should have is either someone else with whom he can check or more people should know about more things like, you know, different doctors have different opinions. And so if you get like a horrible, you're going to die in three months, like diagnosis from somebody, you might want to get a second opinion. And if that second opinion is completely the opposite of the first diagnosis, you may want to go ahead and get a third opinion at that point, because (laughs) I mean, either I'm going to die in three months or I'm going to be fine. Maybe I should have somebody else weigh in. Now, that might be an overabundance of caution, but on the other hand, if one person gives you like devastatingly bad news, you probably don't want to say, well, I read on the internet that X, Y, Z, so I'm going to be fine, right? Right, right. I mean, on the one hand, it was sort of like Hannah has always been trustworthy, and, and so Hannah is the one person that they'll, they'll agree with. I mean, the whole place starts to bug out because she says it's all going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, I don't know, I, I began to sort of wonder about the whole checks thing in that because i mean on the one hand i do want to trust i trust experts sure if i go to the doctor and my doctor says you know take this thing or do that thing i'm going to trust my doctor but you know hannah it turns out is not trustworthy at this point it just kind of made me wonder about that on the other hand i want i want to believe and i want to know that there's somebody who certainly knows more than i do but it's, i don't know is it is it is it trust but verify was that reagan's favorite phrase adopted yes. from the russians trust yes. but verify so there's <laughs> hannah And good, I totally believe you, Hannah, as soon as I talk to this guy. While one disaster was averted, another seems likely to follow. So, what can we learn from the Masterpiece Society? I think I said to you, uh, between segments, kind of felt like we were all over the place in this episode. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of episode it is. It is that kind of episode, isn't it? Yeah. And yet, yeah. now, we are we are uh, handed this Herculean task <laughs> of summing the whole thing up. 
This is the part of the show where we uh, ask about the messages, morals, and meanings and try to figure out whether the whole uh, episode stands the test of time. Uh, traditionally, that is the question uh, that we start with, and uh, I'm feeling a bit like a traditionalist today. Does this episode <laughs> hold up as far as you're concerned, John? Yeah, well, I mean, we're back at issue-driven Star Trek with this episode. We, we had a, a long, <laughs> we had a long spate of uh, uh, character-driven and family-driven, which I appreciate. Um, but then you get a lot of them in a row, and mm-hmm. you think, okay, are we going to see something different now? Yeah, and now we have something different. Um, this episode would have fit in TOS might have been a different outcome. Like you said, you might have had Kirk tricking them into leaving or <laughs> just sort of, you know, destroying their computers or something like that. And, and he would have gotten those colonists out of there, forcing them off planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. He would have shown them the error of their ways in a great rousing Kirk speech. Well, once he made it impossible for them to stay. Exactly. But yeah. don't you see? This is better. <laughs> we call it you like moving. It. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot. Now, the production value here is good, though it can look a little dated, especially with the scenes on Moab 4. Fine. Um, I, You know, part of the internal criticism that I referenced before about this episode was with the casting. I thought the casting was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think maybe Aaron is somebody that I could have seen other actors playing as well, but I think John Snyder was fine. I also think that there are great scenes with Jordy here, um, especially with Hannah. And he's not a creep or he's not that awkward guy anymore. He's just strong and smart. And self-possessed. And I love seeing that in Jordy. That is a very cool thing. That is a very cool thing to see. Yeah, he was cool in this episode. So I, I think for all those reasons, sure, it, it, it absolutely holds up. And, and I think as we're going to find, there is just a lot to talk about in terms of what this boils down to with the morals, meanings, messages. I feel like we kind of scratched the surface and we still talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you in terms of the production? Well, before we get to that, actually, I'm beginning to wonder if Deanna has a type. Well, has two types. Mm. Either there's mm-hmm. Riker or who is the guy who was the negotiator who it turns out was, was Beta Z as well or Beta Zoid as well. Oh, yeah. You know um, what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I don't know why I've blanked on the name, but yes. Kind of smarmy, kind of smooth, right? Yeah. yeah. And then we come to Moab 4. And I wouldn't say that Aaron is smarmy, but he's mm-hmm. way smooth to the point that he yeah. can say, you know, what's really attractive about you, all the unattractive parts. And she's still like, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of into you. Oh, I can't help tell it. Tell me more. I just am. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting. We, we should keep an eye on that. If, if, if she comes up with a third boyfriend who's not Riker, if, if he's the same, then, hey, maybe we got to type. Um, as far as whether I think this episode holds up, yeah, I do. Um, I'd say the acting is good. I'd say the writing is good. There's too much, almost, mm-hmm. interesting moral and philosophical stuff with which to play. Yeah. I think this is a, yes, I think it's a really good episode. Now, as you say, it does come after a lot of, you know, this week on a very special episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, it just, it was like, it was almost overwhelming in a way to have so much stuff to talk about. But it was also incredibly fun to 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 come across just a ton of issues uh, that we could pull apart. Yeah. And I'm going to make you start doing that right now, Mr. Champion. Talk to me about <laughs> right. messages, if you will. 
Well, I, I think here's one of the problems with the messages is, is that when you start off with a message that eugenics is bad, mm-hmm. I, I, well, I, I think, I hope that we all get that. I, I hope that we all know it. Um, so in that case, sure. Yeah. Good to remind humanity of that. That shouldn't necessarily be the only takeaway from this episode. I think that's a sort of a big picture thing, the big backdrop uh, upon which to play out everything else. I was actually more interested in the struggle for Moab to stay the same or to change mm-hmm. their fears and the way that they argue their sides with each other. That was interesting to me. Um, the drama is played out with people struggling for power, confused, again, with their own ideologies or their interpretation of those beliefs. The the, the beliefs are the strong parts here, the strong components. Um, you can warn people about imminent danger all you want, and sometimes ideology just gets in the way until it's too late to do anything about it. Maybe that's sort of a more generic message that we could take away from this. And... Maybe the other one that could be a bad message, but maybe isn't such a bad message that humanity isn't very good at or maybe just not cut out for utopia. Hmm. There really is no definition of the perfect way to live. You know, like you said, perfect or better, but compared to what or failed, but compared to what? (laughs) You know, because maybe this is the bigger Star Trek picture. We're just better at Idic than we are at creating these homogenized, um, you know, worlds, uh, tiny worlds in which to live, in which we expect everybody to have the exact same beliefs and the same goals. Now, I still fall back on the idea that there is a certain level of buy-in that you have to have for the Federation to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a certain amount of exclusion you have to have for the Federation to work. But it is a bigger tent, say, than Moab 4. Um, stripping away the rough edges of humanity is the colony's downfall. You know, that is the problem with the colony is that they have so perfected themselves that they can't sort of see to be adaptable. They, they can't see the, the benefit in having imperfections. And we go back to that line that Aaron says, Deanna, perhaps it's your imperfections that make you so unique. Maybe not the best pickup line in the world, <laughs> right. but but as far as a message about humanity, mm. well, that's a pretty good one there. So how about you? I mean, that, that's just a handful, but I feel like there's a lot. Well, I, those were all good ones. I mean, one of the problems that I have pulling a message out of this episode is um, the situation set up is almost too good, like hmm. this side of paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, this side of paradise was actually perfect as far as I'm concerned. Um, it, for, for the, for the show, I mean, and let's, yeah, let's remember yeah. what everything was. Everybody was happy. Nobody was getting sick. Nobody was dying. Nobody was wanting for anything. No, they weren't building or making or doing, but they didn't feel the need to. Mm-hmm. So I mean, for them, it was fine. And then somebody else came in and said, Hey, you're not making or building or doing. And so I'm going to snap you out of that, make you sorry. And then I'm going to make you go to work, you know? Okay. It, it seemed to be working for them to a point. Uh, in the Masterpiece Society, they almost have the perfect society. Um, you have to say to yourself, what are the odds that a stellar fragment, you know, destroying everything is going to come sailing through like <laughs> close to the planet, right? Otherwise, this society is perfect. You're right. They were not prepared to save themselves, but who is? I dare say if a stellar fragment comes close to Earth, mm-hmm. we're done. Yeah, we're cooked. 
and and we can have all the idic we want. We can have all the you know moving ourselves forward we want. We can have all the money we want. We can have all the Swiss retreats that we want. <laughs> we're gonna die. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> if an asteroid hits this planet, we're gonna die. So. The problem with that planet was that they had a perfect society unless something really terrible went wrong. That doesn't make them any worse than us because we have kind of a crappy society in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unless something really terrible goes wrong. Um, I found myself thinking about um, the character The Mule from Isaac Asimov's book Foundation, part of the Foundation Mm -hmm. trilogy, which then became a whole bunch of other things with robots and stuff like that. But the first, the the Foundation... (laughs) Uh, I, I knew it reminded me of the mule, but I couldn't remember exactly why. So I turned to our good friend, Wikipedia. Oh, source of all knowledge. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah indeed. Indeed. It, it's mm-hmm. like memory alpha, but, you know, more convenient <laughs> because it's backed up other places. I'm just saying. Right. Uh, one of the greatest conquerors of the galaxy has ever seen, the mule is a mentalic who has the ability to reach into the minds of others and adjust their emotions individually or en masse using this capability to conscript individuals to his cause. Uh, Not direct mind control, per se. It's a subtle influence of the subconscious. Individuals under the mule's influence behave otherwise normally. Uh, Logic, memories, personality, all that stuff's intact. Uh, This gives the mule the capacity to disrupt Harry Seldon's plan for invalidating, um, excuse me, by invalidating Seldon's assumption that no single individual could have a measurable effect on galactic socio-historical trends on their own, due to the plan relying on the probability of the actions of very large numbers of people. Okay. Hmm. In other words, you got to not think that there's going to be a stellar fragment coming to hit the colony. Yeah. This colony is only going to fail because something disastrous is going to happen to it. Otherwise, they were going fine for 200 years and would have gone fine for another 200 more. Boiling all that way down, you can't account for every variable. And assuming that you have leaves you open to disaster, right? Hmm. They also did it in Attack of the Clones. Obi-Wan Kenobi goes to the Jedi Library, or the Hall of Records, or whatever they called it, because he's looking for a planet. And the Jedi are so convinced that their library is perfect that they're like, there is no planet. Well, it turns out there was. Yeah. They just they just couldn't see it because they're so, you know, head up with their own perfection. Yeah. And I guess same goes for the people in Moab 4. So that's all a very long way around to say that one of the messages uh, may be, uh, just be ready to roll with it. <laughs> you know, whatever it happens to be, um, don't be so caught up in your own ideas, your own ideology, your own dogma, as Picard referred to it, uh, that you can't be open to other ideas, I guess. I mean, that's that seems to me it's got to be it's got to be at least one. And then, of course, I mean, there is not to make it sound, you know, stupid. There is also <laughs> the whole idic thing. I yeah. mean, there is the whole being open to other ideas, not just. Not just other possibilities, but actually other ideas, talking to other people from outside. I mean, again, Hannah had the germ of what they had to do. Right. But it was only talking to Jordy and dealing with somebody that she wouldn't normally have dealt with that they were actually able to uh, to save the colony. I think there's a part of me that wonders if, ha- had the stellar core fragment not whizzed by, had the Enterprise not been in the area, mm-hmm. would something else have happened that would have piqued Hannah's curiosity? No. To, no? I, I, it seems not. She was, she was under the impression that she was as smart as she could possibly be. It was not until she met Jordy and went up on the Enterprise that she found herself looking around and saying, wow, why didn't I do any of this? Well, I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, and she's never needed anything. And she says that that's sort of terrible, but she only realizes it's terrible once some Kirk-like influence has snapped her out of her SETI Omicron 3 or Omicron SETI 3 state. <laughs> 
right? But like you said, you know, you can't adjust for every variable. Some right. other variable, like I said, could have been along. <laughs> and it, no matter what it was, you know, yep. it, it could have been anything that that could have set one of them off because you simply can't account for that. And that kind of goes back to my fascination about all these failed utopias that that litter at least the American countryside and other places, too. Um, yeah. You know, part of the, the interesting thing here about the psychology of all of this is that you, know, you can't account for somebody else's happiness. Um, what you assume other people will be satisfied by. Well, except again, the, I mean, the parameters, though, that are set up here are that those people are, in fact, happy. Sure. This is the part this is the part where it seems like a lot of times we get into arguments where people will write in or you and I will actually talk and be like, well, I don't understand how they can be happy. Well, it doesn't matter because on the page, they're happy. Yeah. I mean, yeah what's yeah, what's yeah. been set up for us is, OK, here's your thought problem. Right. These people are by themselves. They've been by themselves for 200 years. They're evolving somewhat and they're all totally blissed out. They're absolutely fine with that. Now, this other thing's coming along. So now what's the issue? Right. I mean, we can't get caught up on, well, would I want to live there? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> we, we don't. And if we did live there, we would want to live there because the parameters that have been set up are, well, of course you'd want to. Mm-hmm. And nobody has not wanted to to that point. It's only introducing something from outside. And it's literally dropping part of the sky on these people <laughs> that makes them actually have to start thinking and doing and whatever. Yeah. And most of us don't spend our lives thinking – Wow, part of the sky may fall on me. Maybe I should do something. Most of our most of us spend most of our lives kind of the way those people do, except not thinking that, you know, not thinking that everything is awesome. Just thinking that everything's, you know, fine. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I won't get hit by a car today. <laughs> See you tonight. Or or a stellar core fragment. Yeah. Or a stellar core fragment for that matter. Part of Skylab if we're traveling back Ooh. thirty or forty years. Yeah. yeah nice. I was convinced that Skylab was gonna take me out that <laughs> summer, dude. I was just convinced. Well, I'm glad it didn't. All right. Well, that's a handful, maybe just a handful of the morals, meanings, messages, and and deep ideas that we're in the Masterpiece Society. Um, I'm sure that our listeners will have many more, and they have many ways to contact us, which we described at the top of the show. But now it's time to remind you all that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. Go there not only to find out about what Roddenberry Entertainment is doing and find all the cool Star Trek and Roddenberry products, but also the Roddenberry Foundation, a place that really is trying to do better stuff with the world. You can find more exciting Star Trek podcasts at Trek.fm, that's Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. Next week, Conundrum. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Here is an interesting idea. Could the new wreckage that is Moab 4 produce another bloodthirsty supervillain like Khan? Somebody, please, get to work on that novel. And transmission. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? 
Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.